You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, we have taken more than a month off from the book of Acts, and so I think it's probably helpful to provide a, a quick review of where we've been and how we got here to Acts 9, the passage Mark read just a few moments ago. Uh, as a way of reminder, the series title is The World Turned Upside Down. The title comes from Acts 17, verse 6. In 17, verse 6, we read how Jews in Thessalonica, and we'll, we'll get to that passage in the future, of course, but for now, there were these Jews in Thessalonica, and, and they became jealous of the Christians who, they were getting saved, people moving in. And in the middle of this scene, we read this astonishing statement. These men who have turned the world upside down have come also here. And they're just like, what's going on? As I laid out in the first sermon in this series, the kingdom of God is advancing. It is God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now think Acts 2 in Pentecost. It is God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who are a part of shaping His kingdom. It's God, God's kingdom advances. The world is being turned upside down. There's a movement going on. A movement that began in Acts Two with Pentecost and is continuing on to this day right as you sit and listen to me. Now, why are so many people seemingly being changed and becoming Christians? Like, what's, what's going on here? As many of you know, the change is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became one of us. He became a man. He is fully God and fully man who lived a perfectly holy life with a singular mission. To reconcile a sinful people with a holy God. And the only way to make peace with the justice of God was for Jesus to become the atoning sacrifice for His elect people. As many of you know, Jesus was crucified and buried, but what is remarkable as well is that the story didn't end with his burial. To demonstrate his authority over all things, Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave. Now just imagine if you were there at the cross seeing your friend Jesus die, and then several days later you see him again, you're like, whoa, he's teaching, he's talking. No one goes to a funeral and expects the person to rise from the casket. What Jesus preached during his earthly ministry and then backed it up with his words and actions was and still is transforming the world. And by faith, people were believing the message of the resurrected and living Christ. So, between Acts 1, chapter 1, and chapter 9, 
We have seen how this message changes the world through the salvation of souls. Today's passage is obviously a continuation of the unfolding story in the book of Acts. And as the story unfolds, we see what it means to be a Christian in a world that is relatively hostile to Christianity. In particular, there are claims Christians must make in order to be a Christian. Do you know that? You, Christian, are making claims about your faith and what you believe. But these claims also invite hostility. Certain aspects of today's passage remind me of a story I initially saw online, and then I saw it when I was visiting my mother-in-law in Minnesota on the nightly news. It was like actually the only positive story on the nightly news. Um, over, over Christmas break, I saw how a seventh grader's life was changed for the good. Uh, Jonathan Jones was born colorblind. Uh, the video went viral, so I'm sure some of you have seen it. Uh, Jonathan Jones, he was colorblind. But before I go any further, think about what life would be like if you could not see color. Like, I can hardly stand black and white television. I couldn't imagine not seeing color with my eyes. Well, this young boy's world changed when during school he was given a pair of glasses. As the Washington Post points out, the glasses were handed to Jonathan by the school principal, who was also colorblind. These glasses allows Jonathan to see red, green, purple, yellow, etc. The glasses allowed him to distinguish between colors that he only knew existed because others told him about color. And what was Jonathan's response when he put on the glasses? Like, watch the video, his heart just tugs at the heartstrings. He's like, tears of joy. He could not believe what he was seeing, quite literally. What you and I take for granted every day transformed Jonathan's life. Jonathan's reaction was not only driven by his experience, right? But it was driven by the truth behind the experience. The colors of red and blue are not a myth, but have substance. They're real, they're true. The truth that every color of the rainbow exists will not only change how Jonathan sees the world, but it'll change how he lives in the world. So here is the principle Jonathan learned. Truth is transformative. And when you encounter specific truths for the first time, your life gets rocked. We have seen this same principle change lives throughout the book of Acts. But instead of physical truth, we see how spiritual truths rooted in history and they're testified by God's word. We see how that truth was changing the world. Remember, before we began our Advent series, we saw how truth turned a radical Christian-hating Jew into a disciple of Jesus Christ. Saul was traveling to Damascus to arrest and throw Christians in jail. But then the Lord met him on the road. Saul was saved, baptized, and we also read that the Lord chose Saul to be his instrument to take the gospel to the nations. He's like, I'm choosing you, now you're going to need to go. The person who led the charge on persecuting Christians became a Christian. What we see today is some of the principal truths that are now foundation to Saul's faith and his actions. Here are two truths that confronted Saul when he accepted Christ by faith. 
First, he believed Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 21. That's what he was preaching in the synagogue. Second, he believed Jesus is the Christ. Verse 22. Now, first blush, it might seem that these two statements are saying the same thing, but they're actually communicating something different. When a person comes to grips with these truths, how a person sees the world, lives in the world, completely changes. These truths about Jesus is the answer to the question Saul brought up when he was on the road to Damascus. You remember the question from earlier in Acts 9? He says, he's blinded, right? He says, who are you, Lord? Question. And isn't this the perennial question since the foundation of the world? Who is the Lord? We, we can approach this question in a couple ways. We can turn the question in ourselves and answer the question. So, who do you say the Lord is? We know from the context of Acts 9 that Jesus says he is the Lord. But what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to say Jesus is the Lord? Or for Jesus to say he is the Lord? What is the substance to the affirmation Here's what I mean. There are specific qualities or characteristics attached to the claim. So if I were to go and walk around throughout the Des Moines metro and just meet people in the street and ask them the question, who is the Lord? You're going to walk away with various answers. Right? Who is God? You can ask the question that way if you'd like. Who do you think? Here are some possible responses, at least responses I've received over the years of engaging people in spiritual conversation. I've heard this, Jesus is not the Lord, but he was primarily a nice guy who did good things to the poor. Heard that one? Not God, did good things, helped people out, right? I've heard Jesus is not the Lord, but a great prophet, think Islam. He's not the Lord, but he's a prophet. I've heard Jesus is not the Lord, Christians claim him to be, so this whole thing is just an o- a hoax, right? You made it up. There's no way this happened. Think atheism. Another, thing, another uh, way I've heard this articulated is this idea of Jesus is a nice spiritual idea, but it's disconnected from history and actual truth. I think of liberal Christianity, doing everything it can to disconnect Jesus from history. One more. Jesus is whoever and whatever I want him to be. Now that's popular these days, postmodernism. People making Jesus into their own image, or whatever image they conceive of. How does a person discover the true answer to the question? Well, if I wanted to know about the substance of a person, I would want to know what he or she says about him or herself, right? And then I would want to know what others say about him or her. Before Jesus went before Pontius Pilate to be condemned to the cross, which, by the way, sidebar, what was the question that Jesus or that Pilate asked Jesus? What is truth? See, even Pilate's trying to wrestle with this. All that said, Jesus went to Pilate, and before that, actually, Jesus was put before the religious leaders, right? Here's what Jesus says about himself in the Gospel of Luke. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, they gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. 
And they led him away, Jesus, to their council. And, said, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, this is Jesus talking now, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, you are the Son of God then. And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, it seems Jesus is playing a little coy, right? With these persecutors, but anyone can understand the implications of Jesus' answer. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. It is because of these claims in which the Jews wanted Jesus murdered. The Jews didn't murder Jesus because he was a nice guy. They killed him because of who he claimed to be. Well, I could claim that um, I'm president of the United States. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm president of the United States, right? Now, but what if others corroborate the claim of Jesus now? During the transfiguration of Jesus, so Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, it is recorded that God the Father said to Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved Son, in which who I am well pleased. And just one chapter earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus put the question to his disciples. Jesus said to them, it says in Matthew 16, Well, who do you say that I am? In classic Simon Peter, he's the first to speak up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm sharing a little bit of this biblical backstory of Acts 9 so that you can see, at least from Paul's perspective here, the authenticity of the claim that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, the Christ. Paul's not pulling this out of thin air and like, oh, what do I, what do I got here? No, it's rooted. Remember what I already said, truth is transformative. And when you encounter specific truths for the first time or when specific truths encounter you, your life can get rocked. In Acts 9, Paul's life was rocked. His life was not rocked because of what he physically experienced. Remember, he was blinded and they had to lead him by the hand to Damascus, right? It wasn't the experience that rocked him. It wasn't how he felt that rocked him. His life was rocked because the, the truth discovered him. Everything he had believed prior to his encounter with the Lord was a lie. But then Saul believed what Peter and others believed. Jesus is the Son of God and he is the Christ. So we have seen these two claims and how they're connected, but I want to parse out these two claims, Son of God and the Christ, and see what the implications are of these two particular claims. So for the remainder of my time, I kind of want to look at this passage as two acts of a play. So we act one, break, act two. Think of it that way. So what do we see in the first act? Saul declares what he believed about Jesus. Here's the context of Paul's statement about Jesus being the Son of God, what I've already been talking about. 
It's in verse 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, so he was blinded. Now he can see. Now he's in Damascus. He's trying to find other Christians. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, now here it is again, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So obviously people are still skeptical. <laughs> Saul got saved and like, eh, I don't know. You're doing some, a lot of hating on Christians. This whole persecution thing. I got family who were persecuted because of you. So after Saul arrived in Damascus, his sight was restored. He began to mingle, trying to mingle with Christians in the city. I would imagine there was a lot, lot to process for Saul, and a lot of process for the people who were trying to figure out what's going on. The shock from those who knew or heard about Saul isn't unusual and serves maybe as a confirmation of his changed life. Uh, many of you understand what... Saul went through, right? By grace and by the grace of God, the eyes of your heart were illuminated to the truth of the gospel. Like you stop messing around, doing the party scene, lying, living a double life, you know, and the list goes on. The Holy Spirit began to show you your sin. So with the help and power of the Holy Spirit, you began to change. And what was the reaction of some of the people you were hanging with, right? They began to wonder if you're a fry short of a happy meal. Or, is it, or they thought that you were just kind of going through a phase of life. Well, they wondered if you joined a cult. Perhaps they wanted the change that they saw in you for themselves. Whatever the perception of others, the people around you were amazed and perhaps confused by the transformation. And what transformed you? An encounter with truth about who God is. Why is the truth of Jesus being the Son of God transformative? Why is Saul, or what is Saul implying when he began to preach that in the synagogues in Damascus? The title, Son of God, suggests several realities. First, he is the royal son. In the Old Testament, kings called themselves you know, sons of God. David did that. But now Saul is preaching that Jesus, who was never given a golden crown by the Jews, Jesus who was crucified, he is God's chosen and everlasting king. The nature and mission of this son and this king is so unique that it transcends any previous or future king. Saul is saying he's a royal son. There's a second implication of Jesus being the Son of God, and it's his unique intimacy with the Father, a unique love for one another. Jesus isn't understood, isn't just understood as many, one of many sons of God, but Saul preaches he is the Son of God. Now, this claim really would have raised the hackles of the Jews. Why? Jews did not and still cannot fathom a monolithic yet triune God, that God is somehow three in one. For Jews, to say Jesus is God means suggesting an entirely different God. 
And you know what? They're not off base. Let me put it to you this way. And this gets to why Saul was so bold to preach Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, Jews, Muslims, agnostics, atheists, and various strands of liberal Christianity say that Jesus may or may not be an historical person, but he is not the Son of God. This kind of claim rips apart the person of Christ and dismantles the gospel. If Jesus is not the Son of God, what hope do you have? Saul knew about the implications of Jesus being the Son of God. And so we see him proclaiming the truth in the face of the harshest persecution. If you do not believe Jesus is the Son of God, then you do not believe in the God of the Bible. The second claim is equally scandalous to many. He, here's verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is also the Christ. To say Jesus is the Christ means that he is the anointed one. Another way to say it, he is the Messiah. He is the one spoken about in the Old Testament. Here's what Luke is telling us in verse 22. After Saul was saved, he looked at his Bible. Are we at Old Testament? Okay, here we go. He looked at his Bible, this part, with his eyes down, with a soft heart, and began to read. He began to see that his Bible was about Jesus. It says, Saul confounded or bewildered people by proving Jesus is the promised king. And the only way to prove to a Jew Jesus is the promised king is to show him from the scriptures. He's effectively saying, imagine this in my own head, so I'm going to let you in for a moment. Hey guys, read with me Genesis 1 Verses 26 and 27. Read with me Genesis 3.15. Read with me Genesis 12, verse 3. Read with me Genesis 17, verse 19. Read with me Genesis 28, verse 14. Read with me Genesis 49, verse 10. Read with me. Now I'm going to get out of Genesis just for a moment, although there's a lot more there. Read with me Exodus 12.5. This is all about Jesus. Read with me 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. Read with me, how about Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6? I forgot about Psalm 2. I could throw that in as well. What about Psalm 40, verses 6 to 9? Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2. Psalm Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 7, verse 14. You want me to go on? Okay. Psalm, excuse me, again, Isaiah 8, verse 14. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 42. How about the whole chapter of Isaiah 53? Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Hosea 11, verse 1. And let's just throw in Micah 5, verse 2. And you know what? We could do this all day. I feel like I need a break after that. I point all that out because it is becoming fashionable in American evangelicalism to unhitch, air quotes, unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. There are several excuses for this, one being that people just 
want to preach Jesus, you know? And it's the New Testament where Jesus is most clearly seen. In light of this growing trend, we should see in verse 22 that Saul would not be able to conceive of such an idea. He doesn't have a category for that. I'm sure if he were here today, he would preach against such an idea because it's the Old Testament that tells us about Jesus. It tells us that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. It's from the Old Testament where Saul showed the Jews Jesus. I should add this about Paul's preaching. We know from the words of the Lord earlier in this chapter that God chose Saul to preach to the Gentiles. He is called to preach to people who are not a part of his tribe. We see that emphasized again in verse 29. It seems like a throwaway statement in the midst of everything else that's going on, but it's actually preparing us for where the book of Acts is going to lead us in future weeks. Here's verse 29. And he, Paul, Saul, spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now up to this point, we can see him debating the Jews and preaching in synagogues, but now we've got Hellenists. Saul knows that the gospel is not just for Jews, but it's for everyone. Paul wrote the letter of Galatians in part to show the gospel isn't just for a select group of people who live in their comfortable little church. The gospel is for absolutely everyone who has ears to hear. For a moment, I want to back up and remind everyone why I chose to go through the book of Acts so early in the life of this church. It's because of these constant reminders for 28 chapters. For 28 chapters, you are confronted with a God who is on mission to redeem his elect people to his son, Jesus Christ. For 28 chapters, God invites you to be on his mission to share the gospel. For 28 chapters, God wants you to get on the evangelism and missions bandwagon for Christ and then to stay on the bandwagon for the rest of your life. For 28 chapters, we see what happens to people when they are confronted with the truth. I'm going to take a moment to make an excursion, but it's an excursion provided by the passage. Uh, You can consider it a sub-point to the main point about the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ. You might notice a transition in verse 23. If you look at your Bible, the translation is probably when, the word when. And it kind of signifies a scene change. Remember I said Act 1? Well, verse 23 and the rest of the passage is like Act 2 of this play. Um, So at the end of verse 22, like the curtains are dropped and the stage crew comes out to create the new scene for Act 2. I mention this because it is speculated with unusual agreement among scholars that Saul went to Arabia for three years. And he went to Arabia between verses 22 and 23. Here's what we read actually in Galatians. And this is Paul writing. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem where where all the apostles were. 
But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Interesting. So the order of events would look something like this. Saul is saved on the road to Damascus. In Damascus, Saul is immediately preaching to the Jews. Then Saul goes away for three years. What is Saul doing in Arabia? My guess is Saul is focused on his relationship with the Lord. Like, think about it. His entire worldview, how he understood the world, the Bible, his faith, would changed. And so I would imagine he was praying, reading his Bible, clarified his thoughts and his heart for what God is calling him to do. After three years, Saul is back in Damascus, ready and rearing for gospel ministry. I've taken time to mention this pause before Saul's ministry takes shape because it's instructive for all of us. Now, we can apply this to leadership, but I want to apply this to all of us. Saul was saved and began to immediately preach, which is great, but he also realized he still had a lot to learn. That's a humble heart right there. When the truth of Jesus encountered Saul, he seemed to know that a healthy wrestling needed to take place. He wanted the truth to shape his life. And how does a person cultivate a depth in their relationship with God, right? You spend time with God. How do you allow the truth of Jesus to shape your life? You need to prioritize your time with Jesus. And I think that's a little bit what Paul was doing. He's like, I'm going to get away here. And I'm just going to go be with Jesus. And this, this makes sense as you, if you actually stop and think about it. We, we need to put down the phone, turn off the TV, remove whatever distractions, and spend time with the Lord if we want to grow in the Lord. When someone tells me, Pastor Sean, my relationship with the Lord is so dry right now, and I empathize with that because I've been there, right? But my immediate response sometimes is, are you praying to the Son of God? Are you reading the Word of God? Are you praising God in song? Are you gathering with the church to worship God? Saul knew this, and we need to know this. If the truth of God is going to make the greatest impact in our life, we need to cultivate our relationship with God. We need to stand in the way of the various means of grace that exist. And at times, that means walking away from all the distractions and all the temptations that surround us. So, excursion and intermission is over. Now, here is Act 2 of our passage. Act 2 moves at a frenetic pace along with the rest of this sermon. After Saul comes back from Arabia, he was not greeted with high fives and hugs from the Jews. The hatred for him grew to the point where the Jews in Damascus wanted Paul murdered. In God's providence and mercy, Saul escaped Damascus with his life. Basically, there were houses back in that day were built along the city wall, and the windows would look outside the city wall, so they put him up in a house by the wall, and they just put him down into a basket, and away he went. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus were hesitant to receive Paul. Same reaction as when he first got saved and was in Damascus. They're like, whoa, you were killing people, and now you're doing what? They only knew him as a persecutor of Christians, and now they needed to process Saul's conversion. Fortunately, a guy named Barnabas vouched for Saul. He's like, he's good. I've seen him preach. I've seen his life. It is transformative. 
Barnabas confirms Saul's conversion story and his subsequent actions of preaching the gospel. So here are two takeaways from this second act. Saul took the zeal he had before conversion and aimed it into a different direction. It says twice in this passage, Saul preached boldly, verses 27 and 28. Nothing is going to stop Saul from preaching truth. If there is an application point, here it is. Christian, in light of what you know to be true about Jesus, are you preaching boldly about Jesus? I'm not going to have everyone like raise their hands um, and tell me if you've shared the gospel in the last week. That's not how I roll. But this passage in the entire book of Acts necessitates that the question be asked. Are you sharing the gospel? I can hear the objection in my own head, once again letting you in. Um, I'm not the great apostle Paul, Sean. To which I respond, no, you are not. You are not the apostle Paul. None of us are. But you are a redeemed and loved by God and have been set with the task to share the truth about Jesus with other people. I'll go as far as say this. The most effective means of sharing the gospel is not when a person preaches behind the pulpit. As important as preaching is, it is. I believe that. It's when you take hold of God's mission and boldly step out to pursue others in faith. You've been equipped with the truth. Now go. So that's the first takeaway from the second act. Paul preached boldly. We need to preach boldly. Here's the second takeaway in verse 31. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace Interesting. Peace in the midst of persecution and what's being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit that multiplied. The church multiplied. A stunning statement. Like, people were going after Christians, trying to put down churches, and yet we read there was peace and the church actually multiplied? You all know this. We, we live in a world where internal peace is elusive and people live in like constant fear, myself included. I know that I battle to live with peace and without fear. If you are like me, verse 31 is for you. Indeed, it's for all of us, the entire church. The only thing we are to fear is the Lord. We do not need to fear anything else. The fear of the Lord, it's, it's, it's reverential. It's a fear that we are just in awe of an almighty God. It's a holy fear that puts us under submission to God. It's a, it's a healthy fear. It is only in this context where fear is a good thing. 
only context, but fear is a good thing, is right here. Walking in the fear of the Lord. It's interesting that walking in the fear of the Lord also includes having peace. So you can walk in the fear of the Lord being completely at peace because of who God is. This is not the way the world thinks, but it's what people look like in an upside-down world after having been encountered by the truth of the gospel. We live with the peace God provides, live in the fear of the Lord, and receive the comfort from the Holy Spirit. Others will ask, what makes you so different from everyone else? I know, I remember when I encountered a Christian for the first time, and just, I'm like, that person's different in a good way. That's the kind of people we want to strive to be by God's grace. And then people will ask, why are you different? You can talk about the foundation of faith. You can share about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the Messiah. Let's pray.